everybody. This is Anna and Brian from Amata World Podcast. And today we have our special guest for the Metaverse episode, Robert Brehenny, uh, who is Google Technical Specialist, Prompt Engineer, Vault Photographer, and as well, Metaverse Tour Guide. Hi, Robert. How are you? Hello, Anna. I'm very well. Uh, can you give a quick introduction to yourself and your very broad background? Sure. I think we're in jack of all trades, master of none territory here, but uh, broad, I think, describes me. I just have a fascination with technology. And if it's creative technology, even better. So I just try and keep a, a fairly wide portfolio and see what's coming down the line and learn a little bit about it as it comes. Nice. I mean, one of your titles and your LinkedIn, you mentioned you are a metaverse tour guide. So that is a very interesting term. Could you please elaborate on what that means and sort of why, I guess, how did you get that title? <laughs> sure. Well, I should probably say it was self-appointed. I was in an unusual situation about a year ago. I do quite a bit of conference speaking. And obviously the metaverse was the thing to be in over the last tail end of 21, 22. And I realized I was giving these speeches off the back of some of the work I'd put into VR projects a few years back. And I had not built a metaverse installation yet, not even another platform. And so it seemed like a little bit of imposter syndrome kicked in. And so I, I made a space and I, I chose spatial to do it, which you may know. What I like about it is it tends to support the creative crowd. And so aligned with my interests, which is a lot of generative AR. So I made a space and it trended quite heavily for a few days. So I think I had about a thousand visits in, in the space of a week, which probably isn't a lot for YouTube views, but it's considered quite good for the, the spatial platform. But I had people drop in and start having conversations. And then people just invited me to speak to their groups so that the tour guide came about when I had somebody suggest I could introduce some, of all things, Italian industrialists, manufacturers who'd heard about the buzz, but wanted somebody to walk them through some locations. So we went through a series of uh, gallery spaces, interactive spaces, and a little bit of herding cats or uh, trying to guide school children through the, the museum. But it was really fun. And they asked some very interesting questions, but it did feel like walking somebody through a, a real space. So you have that impression of, of physical space you get from a, a 3D world like that. It was very refreshing because I'd spent most of my time building websites and, and those kind of engagements. They didn't have that immediacy. So yes, tour guide was, was a lot of fun. And could you give some examples on the projects you're working now or maybe you worked before connected to that space, like even better as Sure. The metaverse period of my interest, I would say, was sandwiched between some work I'd done as part of Daydream Google. Five or six years ago, we were working on Google Earth VR. And I actually built, actually at the time, it was Google's first dedicated VR space. And so there was this room that I was very proud of. Sundar, our CEO, came to visit it. And we had all sorts of, we had a Ukrainian orphanage at one point. But we had this recreation of the entire planet in Google Earth. And that was terrifically exciting. So it, it was a little bit metaverse -y, but it was austere because you would go in and you would see the beautiful scenery, but there was no people, there was no voices. Over the last year, I've been particularly taken with generative AI. And so I got hit by the mid-journey bug big time and got very uh, hooked on making these fun little pictures and using them to tell stories. And it just felt like Instagram didn't do them 
justice. So here was me trying to refashion myself as a, as a digital artist, but I didn't feel like one because I'd never shown any work. And I figured I had to put them in a space somewhere. And so there was the option of either approaching a local gallery and printing stuff off and the expense that that entails. But what made sense was, okay, let's just create something in a platform that exists. I had all this great imagery, some stories to go with it. And I wanted to put it in a place where I could incorporate a bit of audio, a little bit of experience design where I created somewhere where people could sit down. There was virtual coffee there. They could join me for a drink or a vernissage. And so the thing that I built was, it was pretty cookie cutter. It was fairly template but I tried to tell stories with a grouping of, of the pictures. So I had an episode as a gallerist. It seemed to go down quite well. And then I helped a number of my friends and colleagues in the in the art scene, the, the mid-journey community, build theirs as well. And some of them got quite adventurous with bringing more 3D assets, more animation, stuff like this. And so we created a, a whole series of interconnected galleries and then occasionally ran tours through the various connections, which gave everybody an opportunity to talk about their process and why they chose to do what they were. That, that was a very interesting question for me at the time because in the early days of AI, people would always ask you how you did something. But for me, the interesting question was always why you did it and just creating a, a dedicated space in the metaverse that people could join you in a headset or a mobile phone, potentially. There's an app or just a, a website. You log straight in and you're there without even needing to register. It just felt very accessible. But the immediacy of having your artwork in a space that if you had a headset on gave you a sense of scale it gave you just this impression of just the fidelity, I think, was there. I got quite hooked on that. So there were many evenings where I just hung around my gallery at night and occasionally people would step through and walk and some would just look and some would engage in conversation. But uh, I felt like I had a, a double life in, in the metaverse for a, for a few months after I launched this thing. So all of that, what you described, sounds a bit, I guess, closer to a kind of metaverse experience. Would you say that that was a small mini metaverse that you created with all these different galleries and having people move in between that. How was the experience like for you, the artist, and also for the people who are visiting the gallery? How was the feedback? Well, people, I think, were broadly complimentary. I think a lot of people were being light, to be honest. I would have said the quality of content varies quite a bit. So a lot of people just race through. Sometimes people don't find your images arresting, so they would zip away. But what struck me and I think was unexpected because previous experience of the metaverse was more things like Decentraland and some of the more game-oriented ones. And they tend to skew quite young. So chances are you're not going to get the the best of conversation at a bunch of preteens running around swearing at each other. And I found that it was actually an older demographic, which I was not expected. The Italians got, for some reason, I fell in with this Italian crowd and a lot of retirees. And there was just something about the level of conversation in that space where they were fascinating people. They were quite established in their own careers and they had some very meaningful things to say about art. And so for me, it wasn't just that it was a metaverse. It was really a community and it just happened to be using the metaverse, but it could honestly, could quite have easily have been a Facebook group or a WhatsApp chat, something like that. But there was something about the absurd sight of a bunch of Italian retirees sitting on wooden stumps around a pretend fire, taking turns talking about art. But I got hooked. It was really very charming. 
it's basically the core is the community. I think it's just a lot of people when talking about metaverse, they're thinking about the Ready Play One VR, fully VR experience owned by one in entity. But I think right now we've seen some kind of metaverses, even like AR mixed reality. So it's not only virtual reality. Do you think, what do you think will be the future one entity who will own it, multiple different metaverses, some kind of like a mixture of AR jumping into the VR. So what's your uh, personal view on it? So my hope, I think there's the, a difference to be made between what hope would suggest happens versus reality. My hope is it becomes more like the web, where there's a series of open protocols that people can share. And it means these individual versus whatever you choose to call them become properly interoperable becomes important if a large part of your identity and self-expression is built around how your avatar is represented maybe some of the abilities that you take i mean it could be flying or jumping or running very fast stuff like this but chances are you've paid somebody for the privilege of doing that and you would like to do that across various metaverses that makes it harder to do across a range of different platforms there are no in stone standards at the moment, although there is a metaverse forum that's hopefully going to thrash some of this stuff out. Back to the community question that you mentioned, Anna, to an extent, if this is a game about where the audience is, a lot of them are in games just now, and an awful lot of them are in Roblox. It tends to skew younger, but people are creating incredible games there, running side businesses and hustles and getting very high engagement and some really fun stuff. And even using the platform to generate short form video content for YouTube, where people are making comedy skits, stuff like this. So on one hand, I would say, yes, Roblox is a metaverse and it's got a huge community. It's just a very specific demographic. There's even a, a VR viewer for it. So you can have that headset view of the metaverse, which I think isn't always a fair representation of what it is. I would actually contend that probably the most active platform that I would charitably describe as the metaverse is Fortnite from Epic. They're making a concerted effort to build a community and a creative community because they're sharing the proceeds. I think they've got a budget of something like 600 million they, they put back into the creator economy, which they didn't have to do, but I appreciate that they do do that. Facebook, of course, it's, it's the elephant in the room. It's the big player. They've invested billions over the course of the last couple of years, but the reality of Horizon Worlds is at the moment, I've heard it described as an abandoned carnival, but they've, they've spent, as I say, billions. Somebody just did a recent breakdown on YouTube, which according to them seems to suggest there's only about 900 English speaking, regular active daily users, which is probably not where they want to be just now. So perhaps the community will be around TikTok later, but what that looks like from a, a metaverse perspective, I don't know. I wanted to ask you, because you've also ha have experience working with you know, Google Earth and you know, Project Daydream and the stuff you're doing with the VR and Google Earth. <laughs> like, I think that whole idea, some people would describe as something called digital twinning these days, where you're almost replicating reality in a virtual environment. A lot of the metaverse projects today, they're all fictional environments, completely created from scratch. Like, do you think there will ever be a kind of balance between the two what's your opinion like having worked in both sides of things do you think metaverse will tend to be will start to take more inspiration from the real environments or would they 
go in the direction of being completely sort of driven by creativity and you know, bend the laws of physics and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> what would be the more exciting metaverse to you? Sure. So speaking from my video game preferences, I tend to like the more fantastical environments, but I appreciate that putting together a AAA game is the same kind of investment as you would expect for a Marvel movie these days. So a lot of these games are coming at 100 million, which means there's a certain amount of, of riskiness and perhaps a resistance to, to taking some of the creative risks. You tend to get familiar tropes over and over. I mean, a good example of that, something like GTA V, which looks phenomenal, but it's very, very real world. And if you're going to do a real world, Google Earth is a pretty good place to start. And we actually have the option to stream 3D geometry. So you can build an app. You can funnel it straight into Unreal, I believe. So um, the, the, the stuff on the developer portals about that. So people can do that. But if you're going to do it in the real world, how about you really do it in the real world? And you get this, I would say, mixed reality from something like Pokemon, which on the one hand had that famous, hey, it's an AR game, because you could turn the camera on and you could throw pineapples at your Pidgey out in the street but the reality was it would kill your battery and it made the game harder to play but it was augmented in as much as you could walk towards usually interesting locations in the street it might be a statue or a famous building and have an interaction with the real world that didn't have to be specifically photorealistic in the game but you were working with real world maps just in this pokemon world style so that was a really nice example of that and i think as we have more and more of a push towards heads up displays and i think the initial ones are going to be um, fairly constrained google glass of course was an early example of this 10 years ago had they not included a camera it might still be here with us today but i feel like for the augmented reality view on the world that we will be deeply engaged with it has to be on your face the whole time and so <clears throat> to the listeners two two out of three of us are wearing glasses so we understand the utility that glasses can bring but the idea of having something with this augmented layer in the real world. And it doesn't even have to be that traditional mixed reality where it's perspective correct because the huge amount of computational power that needs to come with that, either on device and then there's heat issues and battery constraints or streaming when it's data costs and the lag that comes with pulling stuff from the cloud. Bose, of all people, the, the speaker manufacturers and, and increasingly headphones, they had, I want to get this right, I believe they called it frame Bose frame or frames possibly. And they had a device that was actively augmented glasses, but it didn't give you any visuals. It just gave you an audio track. So one of their best single implementations of an augmented real world experience was downloading the golf course you were at. And it would make the kind of recommendations that a good caddy would. So was that a metaverse if it was only in the audio? Well, I think it was because it was location specific. It was in the real world. Your glasses knew where you were because it was connected to the GPS on your phone. They had tilt switches, so the, the inertial measuring units, it would know if you're looking up or down or left and right. And so I think a future where you can walk down the street, have some sort of curated experience, almost, I mean, like chat GPT, Bard, all the rest of it, having a conversational interface with, I think, what you could call a, a concierge that knows where you are and the kind of things you're interested in. So the metaverse becomes an additional layer of information in many forms that sits atop the real world that may or may not have a visual or audio component. But yes, I'm, I'm fairly broadly supportive of this idea that all things will become mixed reality because it's, it's a no brainer. Once you use it, 
it's going to be very hard to say goodbye to it again in the same way we all have our phones in our pockets and spend far too much time on them as it is going back to your video game example about gt i think there's a lot of other games that are kind of taking inspiration from real world another one that i quite like is um, watchdogs i think their recent release was based around london so you could almost imagine that it's if you have some kind of system that's almost evolving based on what you know, current London looks like, that would be almost quite exciting. It's, it's almost like an evergreen kind of content system. You know, you're constantly pulling in data from reality and just modifying or like interpreting that in your, uh, I guess, metaverse world. That'd be quite exciting. I think that that's why I think that, I don't know what your personal opinion is, but when, you know, when I saw what AI was capable of, I immediately thought that, okay, this could be almost used to enhance like what kind of content we can get in the, the metaverse these days because right now you can almost you know you can ask mid-journey to create you know an image or you can give it a photograph and say draw it in you know in south picasso or can you turn this into a cartoon anything like that do you do you think that this technology would also help enable more kind of metaverse experience or make it easier to create metaverse experiences yeah absolutely um, <clears throat> let me come back to the second part of that question just the observation on watchdogs do you like to get, I have it. I've only, I've only played a little bit at the beginning, but for those that haven't played it, you explore a very gritty urban realistic landscape, but there's an augmented layer as you play because you can hack traffic lights and bank ATMs and all this kind of a thing. So you're walking through this information here, which is overlaid, which is a literal representation of what's out there. Because if you could see radio waves, you'd see these giant spheres emanating from everybody's Wi-Fi boxes or, or data streaming from pocket to pocket as people Bluetooth things. And I love this idea. Years ago, somebody had, I think I read an article in an early Wired about, I believe it was called war chalking, where in the early days when connectivity was hard to find, people would put little symbols next to areas that you could basically piggyback off some internet connection, the early Wi-Fi days, and it would tell you what kind of password and security they had. So the idea that there was a secret knowledge shared in this very clandestine manner between those new, I found that a fascinating idea. And actually, I wrote, I tried to pitch, I had a friend working for EA at the time, and I tried to pitch a game based around that. And then, you know, many, many years later, Watchdogs came around and a much better implementation of, of the kind of thing I was thinking about, but I love the game, yeah. If my figures are correct, I think GTA 5 cost 135 million to build. And they've come out and said, or at least they did at the time, I don't know if this is still true, there is no procedurally generated content. They will lay out every street, every person standing in the street corner, all the little stories peppered around the landscape. Somebody has written it or positioned it or built it. And I love that, but it's not sustainable. And so you have this steep drop in, I'd say, reality or fidelity between these AAA games that can afford to do this and make a billion in their first weekend after launch. And the Me Too's that obviously have to cut their cloth from uh, something a little more meager. But the idea that you could take the, all right, here's a good example. There's a, a Swiss company called Esri that own, well, the, the Swiss company was City Engine which you might know from the movie Inception, where you can create these very realistic cityscapes, which are, I'd say, culturally, stylistically appropriate for the, if you specify, like the Far East versus Midtown America versus Parisian suburb, it gives you the correct mass of buildings and the facades that you would expect. So you can create pretty compelling environments that feel right for 
the quality of light you would have in there. So I think that type of automation lends itself very well to populating these metaverses. Because if you walk around something like Decentraland just now, it's pretty uninspiring. And I think that's for two reasons. They're on a limited budget, and I get that. But at the same time, there are rendering issues with it. So potentially with a mix of streaming this stuff from uh, cloud service somewhere, which is not without its problems because you're spending anywhere between a dollar and two dollars a minute to get that GPU putting the content to you. With the idea that you can now stream Unreal for the cloud, what people expect as a metaverse is closer to what they get on their PlayStation 5s now as compared to what Second Life looked like years and years ago. And it's going to be expensive to produce the, the volume of assets. So I absolutely think generative AI is going to be a part of that. The other element you see in a lot of these metaverses is complete lack of people. And so you have that situation almost like nobody wants to be the first person into a restaurant where nobody's in there because obviously everybody knows it's a terrible restaurant, but somebody has to be brave enough to go in and sit in the window and then give permission to everybody else. And a lot of metaverses are like that. They're just empty shells. And until you populate with somebody that you can have a, I would say, meaningful conversation with, why would you go in there? And I've seen some great demos where people have uh, brought in an unreal metahuman, for example, plugged their brain into ChatGPT, done some natural language processing. And with a little bit of delay, a little bit of a stiltedness, you can have a meaningful conversation. So I think that's the other part. You're going to automate the production, a lot of the 3D assets. And in terms of the interactions, you can start getting some fairly compelling story arcs from virtual characters that were already soulmachines.com. They were a good one. They were quite early with this stuff. That was before a lot of the ChatGPT stuff. So more and more of that, I'm sure, will make their impact in, in metaverses and allow them to scale and be more interesting. And most importantly, build a community because there's actually content there for them to come and interact with. I see the industry tending towards that direction as well. Like with their latest release of Unreal Engine, they've got the tools built in for procedurally generating environments based on sort of certain settings or prompts or whatever you call it for them to sort of generate sort of environments on the fly without having to have an artist sort of painstakingly you know craft every single asset i think during their demo they showed how they they crafted like a small section a little island and then they expanded that using their algorithm to like create like i don't know like a couple mile long jungle like surrounding that little island and that was all procedurally generated and look it all looked fantastic as well and it was like you know fully rigged and everything so you could traverse the environment in their little vehicle and everything yeah and also in like on the the topic of creating sort of i guess realistic characters to talk to i think there's another company i've heard of doing something like that is um charisma.ai i think they're relatively new as well but they I think that's kind of their the pitch. You give them sort of the templates for characters, and they build sort of the the AI that the conversational AI to use these personalities and everything, so people can just interact with them. And it feels like you know they're talking to say a character from a movie or something like that. You know, I'll check that out for sure. Thank you for the hot tip. Um, do you have any hopes and predictions for the future of the field, and maybe for the future of your projects? And as well, if you can add. For example, if some of the small companies trying to do something in this field, maybe you can give some sort of advice. Sure. So my interest is is transitioning, I would say, into generative AI right now, which I think will be very useful for a lot of the, the metaverse industry. But 
uh, as much as the the metaverse has perhaps uh, fallen prey to the Gartner hype cycle, we're getting that way with generative AI. And so you see a lot of Me Too apps built across the, the basic foundational models you get from the usual suspects like OpenAI and <clears throat> Bard and Facebook and Microsoft to an extent. You're going to see a lot of really useful tools come out there without so much fanfare, which will allow the creators to tell better stories. And that, that's a very exciting place for me to be. It's almost a played out trope as well. Everybody's putting storyteller in their uh, YouTube, their, their LinkedIn descriptions just now, but it's incredibly valid. And I think it's something that the film industry has perhaps forgotten how to do. We've become so swept up with spectacle because what you can stretch a budget to now with visual effects is is so far beyond what we could before. This is what we do. We get bums on seats in the cinema because we give incredible spectacles. But there's a little bit of us that knows that stuff isn't real. It lacks the, the integrity. And so you have something like Mission Impossible is doing very well at the box office just now because you know that's Tom Cruise actually driving a motorbike off of a off of a cliff. Now that's very expensive. You're not going to be able to do that on a little student project. But what I find particularly fascinating is the suite of tools like Runway, like Wonder Dynamics. There's a bunch of them just now, which are coming out. And I would say giving access to the sort of visual effects. And it's even boring stuff like rotoscoping, or if you want to cut somebody out from a background or, or change the weather, it's not necessarily aliens landing or, or destroying the, the White House or something like that. But the stuff that would have been prohibitive to do that would have added polish to a smaller project. So I'm, I'm very interested in some of the AI tools that are coming up in filmmaking, not because they add to the spectacle specifically, because they allow the, the auteurs, the artistic voices to be heard with a degree of, of polish or fidelity seems to be the word I keep coming back to. They wouldn't have had before. And so you think back, most of the... Uh, big name auteurs that we've had over the the past 50 years of filmmaking like the Spielbergs and and George Lucas to an extent David Lynch all of them they started with very very small low budget Robert Rodriguez famously shot his first movie seven thousand dollars and the fact that you could do all of that with an iPhone now but there was a certain limit to the finished dare I say product would look like but the idea that you can shoot something fairly straightforward in your backyard and then restyle it in something like runway or turn a cereal packet into a space station, something like this, that that to me is intriguing. And it's, it's a huge, empowering set of tools for people that I think are going to be telling the new stories because people have been a little bit tired of recent releases at the box office. And so we need new voices and not just as simple as getting somebody doing one indie movie and giving them $200 million, which I think Marvel did with the Eternals. And I don't think it landed very well. Just just keep it smaller. There's some lovely movies out there just waiting to be told. And what's fascinating about the situation we find ourselves in, the tools have never been more accessible. This feels like we're we're taking that power structure from the studios, giving them to the people, and then the quality will will arise. Those that are good at telling stories now have never had better opportunities, both with how they tell stories and how they broadcast them to the audience. I think we're coming to the end of the podcast, so I want to give you a couple of minutes at the end just to uh, have any shout outs or like last words for our listeners. How can they find out more about the stuff you're doing and the stuff you're going to do? 
Sure. Well, as always, I'm always happy to uh, connect with people on LinkedIn. And my, my name, as unusual as it is, means there's only one of me. So I'm easy to find. But uh, my new startup is called CobaltStars.com. You're welcome to have a read through that. And always nice to meet people just exploring this space in a, in a playful manner. So come by, say hello. Let's see if there's an opportunity to collaborate. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for joining my pleasure. Anna Bryan, thank you so much. That was really fun. It was great having you. Bye. Okay. Bye.